Uh, this morning we're in 1 Samuel chapter 9. If you want to read along. And at this point, the people have spoken. And God is listening. And he's going to give them what they want. They asked for a king like all the nations. Now, how do we know that it's God who is giving a king? How would we tell this apart from an election where enough people vote for the guy he's in? Do we say, oh, it's God? How do we know that it's really the guy that God is designating to be the king? Well, here in the next two chapters in 1 Samuel, we see God doing a very complicated, roundabout method of showing who is the guy he wants to be king. And he does it in a sovereign way, with power, with confirmations, so that the king himself is going to know, I am God's man. I am responsible to God first. So, here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 9. It says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So here we're introduced to Saul and his father. And they're both pretty impressive guys. And remember, impressive is part of what Israel asked for. We want a king like all the nations. What did the, all the nations have? A very impressive person that they can be impressed over in the ceremonies and all the pomp and circumstance and traditions. And it's like, wow. Well, we want somebody impressive. So Saul's father can go back five generations. And it says here's a mighty man of power. That means he's either a mighty warrior or he's wealthy. And he might as well be both because he needed to be both in those days. And Saul himself is a choice, handsome man. He's the best-looking guy in all of Israel, and he's the tallest guy by a head. He is a beautiful Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's a basketball guy. He's gorgeous. Now, this is the last we ever hear of Saul's attributes. You know, we, we choose a guy because he looks good on television. That was the reason why Richard Nixon lost the election 
to John F. Kennedy in the 60s. It was the first time they ever used television and a debate. And Richard Nixon did not look good on television. And John F. Kennedy did. That's why we got Kennedy as a president. He looked good. And nowadays you want to look good. Well, God does not choose a man on the basis of how telegenic he is. The outward thing. He chooses on the basis of his knowledge and his wisdom. So, here we have an impressive guy. And we watch as this impressive guy does something very ordinary and unimpressive. Follow along with me as we look for the lost donkeys of Kish. <laughs> Verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please take one of the servants with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. <laughs> so he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And he said to him, Look now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who was now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, Yes, there is, just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to this city, because there's a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore go up, for about this time you will find him. Now, who cares about a bunch of lost donkeys? Have you noticed how long this explanation is? And they've been all over the place. In fact, we're going to see that this is, this is a three-day journey. And Saul is looking for the donkeys. Now, you notice they get to this city where the servant says, hey, there's a man of God in this city. 
And they refer to him as a man of God. They know that everything he says happens. He's honorable. And they don't mention him by name. No, he's only been the judge of Israel for decades. And they can't seem to, you know, what's his face? They don't even remember his name, that he's Samuel. Can you imagine? There is no cult of personality happening here. It's really so nice in Israel and so loose that everything just kind of grooves on along, and they don't even have to know the name of the guy who's leading them. Isn't that wonderful? Now, another thing I want to notice here, just so you're aware of it. You notice in verse 9, there's this little discussion about the use of what would be an archaic word. An editor has slipped in this little explanation. The guy we call a prophet now, way back then, was called a seer. And that's because when they prophesied, a lot of times they would see visions. And it would not be just you know, a verbal inspiration of God, but they would actually see everything that God uh, was revealing to them. And the same with the prophets. And you can look in the later prophets, the major prophets, and it's the word of the Lord which Ezekiel saw. And you think, well, that's kind of interesting to see a word. But he wasn't seeing dictation like a teleprompter. It was the entire vision and the entire revelation. Well, see, in these historical books, in these, this section, that word seer is going to come up a lot. And so they had to put this little information in there. And what it means is that these events were written so close to the time that there needs to be um, explanation, eclairon, Okay, for later readers, what that means is these are not urban legends that have grown in the retelling. These things were written down in the time that they happened. Does everybody get that? This is one more really kind of um, circumstantial evidence that the Bible is full of eyewitness things and not urban legends, because they took care about these things. So this is history, not legends. Everybody get that? All right. The other thing I want to notice is Saul and his servant, there in verse 11, meet some young women. And they ask him for help, and they get the biggest download ever. Very complete. And see, these young women have just had, had the tallest, most handsome guy they've ever seen in their lives come up and ask him for directions. So, yes, I'll tell you everything, and here's my phone number. I noticed these things. It's just funny. Saul is very impressive, and he's just impressed 
a group of young women. Okay. Everything up to here has been normal. It's normal for young women to react that way. It's normal to get frustrated at not finding the lost donkeys. All this is really normal, so we're going right? What is the importance of this? And we're going to get this now as we read in verse 15. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, for their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. Tomorrow I'll let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't be anxious about them, for they've been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? My family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then do you speak like this to me? So the day before this happens, God talks to Samuel and says, tomorrow about this time, I'm sending you a man. And that's the guy I want you to anoint as king of Israel. So why did the donkeys get lost? Because God told them, I want you to get lost, and I want you to stay hidden. Don't let them find you. Do you understand me? And they said, yes, Lord, and they got lost. God can do this. When the sailors throw Jonah overboard, God has commanded a large fish to swallow him, right on schedule. God can do this. So God told them to get lost to get Saul moving on the road. And eventually, sovereignly, bring him right to the place so that when God says, tomorrow about this time, I'll send you a guy from Benjamin. And he shows up because God made him move there. Now, did Saul feel a tingling in his body, the hand of God upon him? Where he says to his servant, "Ah, I don't understand the way I'm moving. Just stick with me. I don't understand this. I'm being shoved in this direction. No awareness of this at all. He's just looking for the donkeys. 
just thinking, where are those, those cunning little beasts? Where did they go? How could donkeys stay this well hidden? This is so frustrating. If I had a sword, I would kill those donkeys right now. But just the same, God gets him where he says he's going to get him. So this whole thing is sovereign in power. But then you notice the reason why God does this. And he says, because the cry of my people has come up to me. I've looked upon my people. Behind God's sovereignty is his love. He loves his people. Now, this is not what he would choose for them. He's not happy about this. This is going to result in the kind of suffering he said would result. And they're stubborn, and they said, no, but we will have a king. He still loves his people. That's what he says. So he's listening to them. And in God's sovereignty, he is able to even make all things work together for good. And he will even bring good out of this when he told them this isn't going to be good. He can still bring good out of it. And here Saul learns that God knows all about him. And he finds out the donkeys are not the main issue. Up until now, that's been on his mind. Get those stupid donkeys. But he finds out there's a whole other universe going on that he was unaware of, that God is directing him, God knows all about him, and even the fact that he's from the smallest tribe in Israel. It's not relevant. God is the main issue. And Samuel says, you're God's choice. That's who you are. So let's continue in verse 22. Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here it is. What was kept back, it was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you since I said I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Now what Samuel is doing is deliberately honoring Saul above himself. Because Samuel put this sacrifice on for Saul. And Saul is the guest of honor at the sacrifice. It should have been Samuel. But Samuel is purposefully giving Saul his place. He is the guest of honor, and he gives Saul his portion from that sacrifice. The officiating priest received the right thigh 
of the offering. Now, that is the best part. And here is Samuel making a big deal out of my part goes to you. My place goes to you. This honor goes to you. Samuel is honoring God's choice as king. That guy's going to be taking his spot. But he says, if God is honoring you, then I will honor you. And this honor ultimately comes from God. Now, verse 25, when they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. They arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house, saying, get up that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, but you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There, three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that, you shall come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you have come there to, to the city, you will meet a group of prophets, a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And let it be, when these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. So it was, when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, what is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. 
Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he went, had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. So here Samuel calls Saul and confirms that calling with signs and with commands. And again, the question is, how do you know that this is God? And not some crazy old guy who pours some oil on your head and says, the Lord has anointed you as king. Could anybody do that with enough guts to mess up your hairdo? How do you know it's God? Well, this is a complicated confirmation here that Samuel gives him. You're going to end up at Rachel's tomb. As you go home, territory of Benjamin, you're going home to your house, you're going to pass Rachel's tomb, and you're going to meet two guys there. Not three, not six, two guys. And they're going to tell you the donkeys are found. Now your father's worried about you. Now how could you prearrange that? You're going to get information from God because only God could know this. And you're to be open to God communicating to you. Listen up to God. And then you're going to go on a little bit further and you're going to run into three guys. One of them will be carrying goats. One of them will be carrying bread. One carrying wine. And he will give you two loaves. And you're to receive them. And the interesting thing here is now God is supplying a basic need. Support. And you're not to have false modesty like, oh, that's okay, you know, don't have to do that. You're to receive them. Because you're God's man, and God himself is going to support you, that's the way it works. So you're to be open to that and humble to receive from God. That's how it works. And then you're going to become a spiritual man. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And you're going to be changed into another man. God is going to change your heart. Now this is essential when God calls you. He enables you to do his will. That's why he gives his spirit. And then Saul is given two there's one general order and one specific order. The general order is verse 7. Let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. It's like, what? Do as what seems right to you, because God is with you. Now that's really general, isn't it? You would wish for more information. You would wish for more, you know, what is the right thing to do? And in the absence of 
a complete set of facts and knowledge, make a decision. Isn't that interesting? Because God is with you. And you think, wait a minute, what if I make a mistake? Ah, you won't make a mistake. God's with you. But what if I do? Then God can use your mistake, can't he? Okay. But what if I sin? Somehow. Yeah, well, God can work around that too. He knows what he's getting, by the way. He knows you're not perfect. But here's a general guideline. You are to trust God and depend upon God that you don't have to know everything. And you can make a decision and it will be valid unless God gives us specific guidance. Now, he gives them specific guidance in the very next verse. There is going to be a meeting. Saul is going to meet up with him. It's going to be at Gilgal, and Saul is to wait for seven days. Not three, not five. Samuel will come in seven days. He's going to offer sacrifices, peace offerings, and then Samuel is going to tell Saul what he is to do. This is specific. And Saul is to obey in a specific, detailed way. He's supposed to trust in God, but when God is specific, he is to obey God Directly, specifically, completely. So yeah, the king is over the people. But the king is under God. And God expects the king to obey him. Now it says that God started as soon as Saul turned away. Right? Right there in verse 9. He turned his back to go from Samuel. Okay, see ya, bye. Okay, see ya, bye. So long, okay, go. He turns and God changes his heart, does something in there. And all these signs are accomplished. But you notice the emphasis is given to when he meets up with these prophets and the Spirit of God comes upon him mightily. And this kind of prophesying here is what is called ecstatic prophesying. A kind of world is just to rejoice in God. It's so natural. That's what's happening to Saul here. And he's not crazy or out of his mind or just raving or going, <laughs> but he is, and I'm not making fun of speaking in tongues, okay? At all. But this is not in the same class as rolling around on the floor barking like a dog either. This is about glorifying God in a way that is glorifying to God. 
So while it is ecstatic, it's also fitting. But even then, people that knew Saul are just a little bit offended at him. And you know that they're offended because they call him son of Kish. Now, to use someone's surname, as it were, without the use of their given name, is a bit of an insult. And we'll even see this with Saul, that later on in the book, he cannot refer to David by his given name. He always calls him son of Jesse. And in referring to him like that, he's just putting him down, son of Jesse. That guy, I can't even bring myself to name him. So here are people that know Saul, and they're referring to him in kind of an insulting, disrespecting way. What's happened to him? And some people see an indication that Saul may not have been such a straightforward religious guy before his call. Could have been just a, you know, a normal guy, one of us. It's not weird. Doesn't talk about God all the time. He just does his thing and we have a few beers. Everything's great. He's a normal guy. What happened to him? He just all of a sudden became a normal, not one of us. He's changed. That's weird. I don't like that. Nobody likes when somebody changes. Because that's weird. Nobody changes. Don't be freaking us out. And especially getting religious. I don't like that. You know what happens when somebody gets religious? All of a sudden, you realize, oh, God. And I thought I successfully got away from that one. But the next thing when you think about God is you think about, oh, sin. Oh, I don't like that either. What got into him? You know? And it's not like you did anything. What did I do? All I did was be completely aware of all the perfections and wonderfulness of God. I mean, what's, what's so bad about that? Didn't Elvis Costello have that song, What's So Funny About Peace and Love? I don't know. But it's like, what's so bad about that? What's so weird about that? In fact, just this morning, I was reading in 1 John, and something really struck me there that I've never seen before. It says in chapter 3, Verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. You know what that's saying? The world does not know the fabulous love of God. Completely ignorant. Doesn't mean anything to Him. You come up to somebody and say, You know, God loves you. And they go, Get away from me. What are you trying to do me? Ah, I didn't need that. But you know, if they knew 
what manner the love of God is, that he would send his own son to die in our place, to remove our sins from us forever? That kind of love, that might move them to get ecstatic and say, oh, the love of God, I never knew. How come I didn't know before? Something happens to you when you realize what kind of love God has sovereignly toward you. Some people don't like that. So it became a proverb. Is Saul among the prophets? This is what you say when somebody gets religion. It's like, oh, is Saul among the prophets now? <laughs> Try to make you feel stupid. But you know, God's man is to be spiritual. When God calls somebody, he's calling them to be spiritual. And, you know, people around that person might say, well, what are you making yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? And the answer is, I am not making myself anybody. But God is making me his man. And if I don't please you, sorry about that. I'm not even here to please myself. But I am God's man, and I am to please him. And I can't change based on what somebody else thinks about me. My life from here on in is to please God alone. So we look at these things. We see a guy who was called by God and confirmed by God. And we think, well, wouldn't that be cool? Happened to him. Wouldn't that be great if it happened to me? And what I want to just say about that is, I hope it already has. Because this is what it means to be a Christian. That is, God sovereignly brought you to Jesus. Do you remember that? You didn't remember a tingle. You weren't dragged kicking and screaming. But somehow God got you to that place, didn't he? Do you remember that kind of thing? And there you were in that place, however it was, and you knew that God was speaking to you and that you had to respond to him. Even if it was embarrassing, you knew you had to respond. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father 
comes to me. So if you received Jesus, that is a sovereign move of God. Just like it happened to Saul. God sovereignly drew to Jesus and you came right on time. Like God has a stopwatch in heaven and he goes, that's it, he's done, he's mine. So when you receive Jesus, you find that he gives you a place of honor. His own place of honor. It says in Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You think, wow, that's intense. But as far as God is concerned, we are seated next to Jesus in the heavenly places where there is no name higher. That's where we're seated right, seated right now. He has given his own honor to us. We don't deserve it, but he's given it to us. That's part of the call. And even confirming signs. Have you ever experienced God telling you something? Kind of like on the level, hey, the three donkeys, the donkeys have been found. I know that God has told me things. Especially for me. I've been in meetings where somebody is teaching, and it's like I am the only guy in the room, and God is talking right to me. And I think, how did that guy know? And I know he doesn't know. Only God could know that, and he is nailing me. Now, I remember when I just started going to a fellowship, it would happen over and over and over again so often. And that's what kind of drew me back as I was thinking, man, God is talking to me. And when it didn't happen, for whatever reason, who knows, I go, that was okay. But I'm looking for God to talk to me. Now, that to me is a tremendous experience. That's what makes church, church in my mind, is that God is talking. But it's also just being a normal life. I've had God yelling at me sometimes. When I've had, been in a, a difficult situation or a dangerous situation, Get out of there right now. I go, wow, 
That's part of the call. Has God communicated with you? Have you experienced that? Now, has God provided for you in practical ways, just like getting two loaves of bread from a total stranger? Have you ever experienced that? You know, I have. And you know, this is the way it's supposed to work when you're called by God. He says, I will support you. And you feel sometimes like, well, I don't deserve it or anything. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with the calling. Because you're God's person. And he is going to take care of you. It's part of it. Now, has the Holy Spirit come upon you mightily? And you know, there's so much confusion on this. God gives us his Holy Spirit to enable us to obey him. Not that we act unbecomingly, because love does not act unbecomingly, or rude, or in any way that is not love. And God surely does not give us his Holy Spirit so that we can disobey him at will. Or pick and choose. Well, I'm going to obey that one because that's fun, but not that one. That's going to cost me. See, just like Saul. I expect my king to obey me in every detail as I command him. So has the Holy Spirit come upon you? In Acts chapter 2, Peter says to the people, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, being born again of the Holy Spirit is permanent, does not need to be repeated. You don't get born again, 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 again. But the enabling of the Holy Spirit, the coming upon experience is repeatable, needs to be repeated so that we live in dependence upon God. So, you know, this is what it means to be called to follow Jesus is to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And if anybody needs to be prayed for for that, I will be happy to pray for you afterwards. And so if you experience these confirmations of the Lord, do you obey him? Because in both situations, the general order and the specific order, it's about obedience. That is, trusting in Jesus is a matter of obedience. We're not to freak out like people who do not have a God. The Lord is with you, therefore do not freak out.
Now, I have to remind myself of this all the time because I freak out. I'm a world-class champion. But still, I'm supposed to obey him and trust in him. Now, you know, God can take care of us even if we make a bad decision. It's, it's a fear that paralyzes us and makes us say, I don't know what's going to happen. What do I do? And we just shut down. God says, you know what? I am God. And I'll take care of you. The reason why you don't get a miracle is because you don't need one. You only get a miracle when you need one. No fooling. And so you got to make a decision and trust God. Now, if he says, shh, don't do that, okay, that's specific. But otherwise, you weigh it up and you read all the reviews on Amazon and you do the best you can. But then specifically, you know, God has revealed his will in absolute detail. No ambiguity. If you wanted a word from God, guess what? There's thousands of them right here. Not ambiguous. And therefore, we're to obey him by learning them. This is not supposed to be something remarkable or beyond the ordinary. This is part of being called. So we're not supposed to pick and choose. I like this. I don't like that. That's not obedience. And the point to all this is that if you have received Christ, then you are God's person first. You're called of the Lord for his purpose. It is a glorious privilege, and it is a great responsibility. Are you allowing God to change you into another person? I think it's interesting that Saul was not going to be God's man as he was. God changed him into another person in order that he might serve him. And so the same thing has to happen to us. Are you allowing God to change you into another person? Now again, we're getting this all around, that if you live openly for Jesus, you're going to get pushback. And the world is going to try to make you feel like a fool for living openly for Jesus. I have received that kind of treatment. But you have become a visible reminder that there is a God, and there is such a thing as sin, and that it is absolutely necessary to be reconciled to God. There is a judgment, and there is an eternal punishment. You're not the weirdo. They are. 
That's something to keep in mind because you're God's person. You're not the weirdo. Anybody who is against Jesus is a weirdo. It's healthy and right and beautiful to live for Jesus. And it is ugly and it is wicked to reject him. Now when you look at a world that has rejected Jesus, it is ugly and is wicked. Do you not see that? Well then, do not be ashamed of living rightly and beautifully for Jesus. Don't ever be ashamed. If you're God's person, then glory in God today. His opinion is all that matters. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for working sovereignly with power in our lives. And we weren't looking for you. We weren't seeking after you, except you came to us first. And you drew us to Jesus with cords of loving kindness. And you have been so good to us, faithful, providing, forgiving, cleansing. And you've even turned us into different people. We thank you today for loving us. And we pray that you would continue your work in our lives, making us your people. Come upon us mightily with your Holy Spirit. Help us to glory in the name of Christ. Be glorified in us, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.